Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. My name is Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and I'm joined as always by Hui Huin, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Say hello, Hui. Hello, Guy. Oh, hello, Hui. And Sean Walker, the creator of Simple Cove. Hey, guys. Hey, Sean. So this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you guys some of our perspectives on how things we get done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account, and right now we have one level, and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. And I also like to say hello to a new patron we have this month, this week, uh, Ben Baker. Hello, Ben. And we sincerely hope that you will give us your support. And stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our own shop. So let's get right into it. Hui, you are at bat. Not at bat. At the, at the, yeah, you're at bat. You, can, you, you have the first question. So this is from Ben in North Carolina, and he's actually one of our Patreon supporters. So thank you, Ben, for being a supporter. I'm a garage hobbyist who loves to work in the shop as a getaway from real life. Generally speaking, I'm a neat freak, and the dust in my garage makes me crazy. I'm currently using a two-horsepower Harbor Freight dust collector with a Dust Deputy XL and wind filter. I've got a combination of PVC piping and flex hose to my tools. The PVC joints are taped together, but not glued. I try to keep the wind filter blown out and have even taped the top of my plastic bag to the metal housing for a better seal. Every time I turn the collector on, I get a ton of fine dust in the air. It covers everything in the shop and even gets to the point of looking a little foggy. I intend to get an air cleaner or just some box fans, but I can't imagine that it will take care of all the fine dust. I don't know what to do. I'm considering the Oneida Supercell because it seems totally self-contained with no exposed filter or bag, but that's a big purchase for a hobbyist. I see shops that look spotless online. Is having a dustless shop really possible? Is there anything you suggest I look at in my current system to minimize the dust? Well, I think the shops that you see online that are spotless and dustless are folks that clean their shop before they turn on the camera. Um, (laughs) and, And can I be honest with you? I do that sometimes, right? But... I have a layer of dust that accumulates on a lot of my tools and on my workbenches and work surfaces all the time. It's just the nature of the beast, uh, Ben. I think you're going to have some fine dust. The best way to mitigate it is to not do woodworking. You sound, you sound, your, sound, your answers are kind of like what I would say. <laughs> Am I starting really? to rub off on you? Yeah, real. Uh, it, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Straight and to the point. Um, listen, you're gonna have it. I have it. I think all of us struggle with it a little bit. I use a leaf blower. That really helps a lot. I know that's like I don't know if that's cheating or not, but I use a leaf blower. I don't. You know, I, I get this dust in in the shop. I open up the garage doors and I just blow out the uh, the thin layer of dust that's all over my stuff. They say that the best way to mitigate it is to collect all the dust and all the fine dust, particularly at the source, right at the tool before it can even uh, be thrown up in the air. That's a really hard thing to do, uh, particularly on some tools where you really need to be able to see what you're doing. I know, Sean, you've used uh, things like uh, dust shrouds and whatnot on the router. Do you use that on a regular basis or, or do you sometimes not use it because it's just kind of inconvenient and not particularly safe for you to be able to see the tool. With the Fest tool, I I mean, I absolutely love it. It's easy to use. Sometimes you can't really see the bit. And like if you're doing a stopped cut, it's sometimes a pain in the butt. But I tell you, I had uh, the Bosch 1617 before the Fest tool and I bought the Oneida third party Mm -hmm. thing for the dust collector for the uh, router. And it it was a pain in the behind to, to always uh, put together and, mm-hmm. and change the uh, fittings and whatnot. But on the Festool, it's super simple. Mm-hmm. They've got it figured out. I'll use it every single time that I can, and, uh, unless I can't see where, you know, where the bit's going to stop. But I love it. Uh, you know, a couple things that I would mention to, to Ben, and I know Guy has brought this up before. Those filters, 
they actually do a better job with the more that you use them and they, you know, the more dust that gets in them. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you're cleaning it out too much mm. uh, and it's not really, you know, it's not doing a good enough job capturing. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but you know, I, I've heard guys say, and I've read this stuff myself, the more dust that gets packed into those filters, the less stuff that's going to come through. And I'm just wondering if you're perhaps cleaning it out way too much, or if you have a leak somewhere that you're not aware of, uh, to be honest, I've never had an issue unless I had a leak on the bag or something where when I turn the collector on, I get a ton of fine dust in the air and, and I get a fog look in the, in the shop. It, to me, that sounds like you've got an issue going on somewhere. You've got a leak and some fine dust is blowing out or something. I mean, I've never had that problem in my shop. Yeah, I get some dust, but you can't see it. It's only one of those things where if you, you know, turn the dust collector off, come back an hour, two, three hours later, and you feel the top of a surface, you may feel something. But if I, if it's looking foggy in the shop, you've got a leak somewhere, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. Check your bag, check your filter, and, and go from there. I, I agree with you. That was the first thing after we read the question. That's the first thing that I that came to my mind is there's a leak somewhere. Because yeah. if you've got a wind filter, that's a MERV whatever number it is i really don't know it's merged something and it's rated down to 99.7 percent of all particles to one micron micron being one millionth of a meter really mm-hmm. small yeah so even clean it shouldn't be letting any of that dust back up into the air so yeah. if you're turning it on and you're getting a big dust cloud you've got a leak somewhere in your system on the suction side Mm. or excuse me, on the pressure side Mm. after Mm. the motor. Yeah. Yeah. So I would check all of that stuff after the impeller. There's somewhere between the impeller, which is the big fan thing and the, uh, the actual uh, wind filter. Right. Somewhere there's stuff getting out. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Yeah. One thing that I do when I, when I empty my bag, cause I've done it before, you know, I'm not putting it on right and, and it blows dust. But what I will do is I will wipe around the, uh, the place where you, you know, you connect your bag, mm-hmm. make sure it's completely spotless and the mm-hmm. top where the filter is. And when you turn it on, if you, even if, if you can't visually see it blowing out, you're going to see some dust blow up on the dust collector where you, where you mount the bag and you'll see that that'll be a, you know, a sign of where you're getting the leak. Yeah, you can also take like a incense stick. They actually sell these things that look like uh, incense sticks. Uh, I can't remember what the hell they're called, but they they, they sell them to the HVAC industry. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, to find you, where it's getting suction in. Yeah, yeah, you light it and it creates a, a smoke trail, mm-hmm. and you can see where you know pressure's coming out or things are getting sucked in. Me, I just light up a cigarette and I do that. Um, but not everybody, <laughs> not everybody that can do that, but uh, I forget, I forget what they're called. There's a name for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can do that and find out where it is. It's it really sounds like a leak to me. If yeah, you're turning a, it on and you're getting a big cloud of dust and you've got a wind filter on there, you got a leak somewhere. It's got it. Yeah. That's a really good point. I've never, I've never turned on my dust collector and had like a fog come up over, you know, my shop. I did so. before I had a good dust collector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Well, hopefully, Ben, that that helps you a little bit. Um, I know that uh, gives you a little bit more troubleshooting to do, but at least uh, you get a little bit of insight as to what may be the cause of your issue. Uh, with that, I think, Guy, you've got the next question. Or no, I'm sorry, nope. Sean. Sean's got That's the next right. question. All right. This is from... ML Bet Woodworks. I'm finishing a large table. It's 10 foot by 5 foot, and I would like to use shellac on it and then seal it with a water-based poly, specifically General Finishes high-performance water-based satin. So I'm guessing what he's doing is he's trying to, you know, get a little color on it and then use mm-hmm. a water, water-based poly. So his it's questions are, how important is it to keep a wet edge with shellac? Since it dries so quickly, I can see some difficulty keeping a wet edge on a piece this big. If so, any advice on how to do that? Well, I'm not, I'm guessing you're talking about brushing it on and that's what I'm going to guess when I'm answering this, but with a piece that large and using shellac, (sighs) I'm not sure you're going to be able, 
but it's tough. Yeah. It dries too fast. So I'm not sure how you're going to handle that. So it's just one of those things you're just going to have to play by ear and see and see what the, if it's sticky, you know, you may just not be able to overlap it. You may just have to get as close as you can and, uh, and do the best that you can. I know I've seen some folks online talk about some thinners, like, uh, I forgot what it's called. It's spelled B E H K O L. Uh, some folks have had good, um, you know, success with that, with thinning it a little bit, uh, to maybe give you a little bit more time. But even then with the table, that's 10 foot by five foot. So you're talking about, you know, 10 foot long passes, I would just get it as close as you can and you may not be able to overlap it. Even though you talk about your temperatures being 68 degrees with low humidity, you're just going to do the best that you can if you're brushing something like that. Obviously, spraying would be more preferable, um, you know, with something that large. But I don't think you can I don't think you can worry about a wet edge with something that large with shellac, you know, just butt it up against the uh, the previous row and just and do the best that you can. And on the second question, on a test piece, well, let me let me pass this first question on before I move on to the second question. Um, have any of you brushed on shellac on a table on a, anything this large, a 10 foot by five foot? And if so, what are your uh, opinions on the matter? I've not brushed, but I've used uh, a dauber or a rubber, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, it definitely is a challenge keeping that wet edge. And, you know, you just kind of have to move and move quick. And a lot of times it's just going to, be uh, applying what you can and then going back and, you know, lightly sanding to even it all out and doing it again. That's, that's all I've done. Yeah. Slack, slack dries really fast, whether you're using a, well, I, I, I call it a rubber wheat just cause I like saying rubber. I, I'm not a big fan of brushing shellac, but you know, it's just to each his own. A table that big using a, a rubber or even a brush to get the shellac on it's going to dry really fast and trying to keep a wet edge on a 10 foot table is going to be difficult. What I'd recommend doing if you want to put shellac down first is rattle cans of shellac. Yeah. If you don't have a sprayer, use a rattle can and just move as not as, I don't want to say move as quick as you can, but move as quick as you need to when you're spraying it, hold it about six inches above the surface Try to keep a, a, a spray pattern that's probably about seven to 10 inches or so. Might take a couple, three coats, but something that big, I think a rattle can's your really your, your, your best thing to do. All right. So the second question is on a test piece I've been using, the above mentioned poly is drying fast, as in completely tack free in under 10 minutes. I'm working indoors in central Ohio with temps above 68 and low relative humidity, probably around 35 to 40%. Should I be concerned that the poly is drying that fast? Will it cause any problems? Again, I'm not sure how you're applying it. Um, if you're spraying it or brushing it, um, it kind of sounds like he's spraying it to me, you know, just spraying a really thin coat. Um, but I, I'm not sure, you know, next time perhaps, you know, give us a little bit more information on how you're applying it. But if you're applying thin water-based poly in those type of temps, I mean, tack-free in under 10 minutes, it sounds kind of fast. Uh, you know, are you, th- surely you're not thinning it. I don't think there's anything to be concerned about, but 10 minutes is, that, that's is, fast. That's very, very fast. Yeah. Very fast. So I don't know if you're, it sounds like you could be spraying an extremely light coat. That's the first thing that came to my mind, because if you're brushing, you can, put down some, you know, some thin passes, but it sounds like he's spraying to me and spraying extremely thin coats of this stuff for it to dry in under 10 minutes and be tack free. Yeah. And if he, and, and if he's spraying, he can go a little bit heavier on the material feed and it might not be as dry as fast if he's putting down a really thin coat. Um, yeah. But 10 I mean, minutes is really fast. 10 minutes yeah. is really fast. I don't know if it's, surely is not meaning like 10 minutes for the entire table but but i guess you know i don't know it, it's hard to tell with that more much more information about how you're applying it um but you're definitely gonna be having to put down more coats if it's drying that fast it means you're putting down some super thin coats of that high performance yeah, uh, water-based the, polish the, the high performance they say to put on the instructions tell you to use a foam brush mm-hmm. which i've always done with if i'm brushing not spraying let's take spraying out of the equation let's assume that he's brushing because mm-hmm. spraying is easy. You just need to up the fluid. So 
if you're brushing, use a wide brush, use like a six inch brush, pour the, uh, the high performance into a separate container, which you should do anyways, because you should strain it first. Use a, a big brush. The, the nicest, the nicest thing about using the general finishes, high performance or the Minwax polycrylic. Yeah. The polycrylic is that when you use the foam brush to put it on and you lay down a thick coat of it, you look at it and go, oh my God, it looks so awful. It dries extremely flat. Mm-hmm. It really levels itself out well. So a five, a 10 foot by five foot table, I would feel very comfortable taking like a six inch foam brush mm-hmm. and putting that stuff in a separate and getting that a really nice soggy edge on that spot that that foam brush mm-hmm. and going from one end to the other. And if you can't go from one end to the other, that's fine. The the, the nice thing about the water-based poly is not only is it dry fast, it levels well, which like I mentioned before, but it also sands really easy. Yeah. So if there is any inconsistencies that you might find it's a lot. It, it's a very easy finish to level with sandpaper, and I typically use like a three twenty or a four hundred grit. I gotta say, on a tabletop that size, I would bypass using a foam brush and try using those f- large foam roller pad applicators. Oh. And I've used foam rollers as well on okay. big cabinets. Yeah, and yeah, they, you can. They do work that. great as long as it's foam. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. They they specifically say use a, a foam roller or foam brush. Yeah. I don't know why, but I'm I'm not a scofflaw. I follow directions <laughs> most of the time. Most of the time. Most of uh, the time. We do you have anything on the you know the ten minute tack time and I mean I can't think I, I can't think of anything else. Again, that's very fast, so it makes me think that he's spraying. Yeah, I don't know how you could apply it by hand with a foam brush and have it dry in ten minutes unless he somehow mastered the art of super super thin. Thin coats by what, using a brush, which, mm-hmm. hey, congrats if so. But you know, I would then be concerned about how many coats do I really need to add on, add, put on here for protection if they're drying that fast. It's it's kind of thin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, hopefully that helps. Next time, uh, give us a tad bit more information about your application methods. Maybe we can help you out a little bit better. But with that, I'm gonna pass it off to Guy for his first question. All right. This is from Chris. Uh, This is a pretty good question. I like this question. It says, hey, fellas, when starting a clamp collection, what size parallel and F-style clamps do you use the most? My future projects include several cabinets for a wet bar, benches, coffee table, and maybe a round dining room table. Thanks for the help, Chris. This is kind of like a we could we could spend a whole whole hour talking about clamps and everybody's got their own opinion on them. Um, mm-hmm. I'm still kind of old school. I like pipe clamps, mm-hmm. specifically the Pony Jorgensen clamps, uh, the old ones, not the new Chinese made crappy ones. I've used the Bessies. I'm not a huge fan of the Bessie pipe clamps. I don't like the mechanism that holds them Mm -hmm. as far as what size goes i do have a few parallel clamps and sometimes parallel clamps are handy Mm -hmm. Uh, i've got i think they're 50s and 24s i've got four of each um f style clamps i have a ton of f style clamps that's what i use the most i use medium not the light duty but the medium duty F-style clamps. I use those all the time. And mainly the reason is, is when I'm doing like cabinetry and stuff like that, all I want to do is put enough pressure on it to bring the joint together. Once the joint is closed, I stop applying pressure. And I know there's a lot of people that apply, you know, I got to put 600 pounds of pressure on this joint. I'm not not a big believer Mm. in that. So for me, I prefer pipe clamps. And I've got a few parallel clamps, but I've got a ton of F clamps. And they they get the job done for me. Hui, what, what do you find yourself using most of? I, I use quite a bit of parallel clamps. In fact, actually, I don't have any pipe clamps, but I've been meaning to get some. because Really? I, you don't have pipe clamps? I don't have any pipe clamps. I, Heretic. I, I, I know. Um, no, I would like to get some, though. 
eventually. And I do use a lot of F-style clamps just like you. Uh, I've got 6-inch, 12-inch, and 24-inch F-style clamps. But in terms of the parallel clamps, yeah, I've got 24s and the 50 inches are probably the two that I use the most. Yeah, they sell those in sets. That's why a lot of people have the 50s mm-hmm. and the 24s. Do you remember, I, and I know we're just like sort of reminiscing here, but it used to be like Black Friday deal, right? Yeah. And Jet yeah. used to always have. Yep, 24 for, parallel. Par, twenty. Yeah, you could get two, you could get up to two pairs or I guess a set of four. And now they don't do it anymore. I can remember, I think it was like a year or two ago, um, a whole bunch of people bought them and it took like six, seven, eight months for people to actually. Yeah, they, I was they, part they, of that crew. The, they crashed the websites. <laughs> remember that? They were offering 50% off on those. Yeah. And um, it, it took a very, very long time to get them. And the ones that I got during that Black Friday deal, mm-hmm. I have nothing but problems with sliding the uh, jaws up and down. It's just, really? It, really? It's a, yeah, it's the quality control and that is way different. And so I rarely use them. And I use Bessie's, but yeah, yeah, I, I was part of that crew. Now I do like using those uh, the trigger clamps. Uh, Bessie sells them. Pony Jorgensen sells them. Not I, like I, the quick clamps. Yeah, the quick clamps. Yeah, I th- those are kind of nice just to hold something in place while you put an F style clamp on it. You know that those put more pressure on a joint than parallel clamps do. Do they really? Oh yeah, they can. The the, the heavy duty. Clamps can apply up to 600 pounds of pressure. That's a lot. Those things kick butt. I use them at work all the time. I actually had them buy me a bunch of those quick clamps. Yeah, so I've got a few of those, and I do like those. Sorry, my dogs are heard somebody outside going crazy. Um, I do use a a bunch of those, a few of those, and um, parallel clamps and F-style clamps. Yeah, let's look what size. Oh, the, uh, the... those quick clamps, 12 inches are the ones that I use the most. Okay. I started out using pipe clamps, hated it, got rid of them, bought parallel clamps. And I started, and a majority, 99% of the time, I'm grabbing 24 inch parallel clamps. I have the Bessies and the Jets. I prefer the Bessies. 24 is my, my go to. Oftentimes, you know, I'm like, dang, I wish I had 12 inch clamps, parallel clamps, but 24 seems to be a, a good a good number for me for the majority of my projects. I do have the really long ones. I think I've got three of the fifties and two of the, some that are even longer than that. And F clamps, I have the Harbor freight ones. I would like to have the heavy duty Bessies cause I think they're amazing, but I just, you know, they work, but I, I use 24 inch and 30 inch F clamps more than any other. And then again, the, um, those Bessie trigger clamps, those are amazing. I have, I like using the, not the, the super small ones, but the, I guess the medium is what they call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, 12 inch for a majority of the stuff, but I do have the heavy duty ones and those things are beasts. But yeah, those are pretty much the clamps that I use. And I, I you know, stick to the 24 inch parallels, mainly myself. Yeah, hey, see, you know. unless, unless I'm doing something very specific, I rarely use the parallel clamps. I much prefer pipe clamps. They put so much more pressure on and they're so, there's so much. And Sean, I'm not surprised you don't, don't use them so much because they're cheaper. No, uh, they're, they're too much of a hassle. I see. I don't think so. Yeah, I do. What, what's a hassle about them? Uh, you know, sliding. I, I don't know. I just don't, the way that the legs, you got to set them down on the table, adjust the legs, slide them in and out so they don't fall over. You got to protect, unless you get the expensive pipe, you got to put something down so that the black stuff on the pipe doesn't get on your boards. And yeah, I just, yeah, I, 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 I've used them for so long. The heads are too small on them compared to the parallel. See, the jaws again, rather. I, I've used them for so long. To me, it's like, it doesn't bother me. And, and I don't, for like the, the, the black marks that it can leave, you can wax those things. That yeah. helps. Or I typically put down like little pieces of blue tape on them. The same yeah. as I would the same as I would parallel clamps. Mm. You got yes, to protect I. those things. You can't get glue on those things, man. Because yeah. glue no, just wipe it off. Yeah, yeah. But that but that's what I'm saying. It still requires some preparation and, and a little extra work either way. 
Well, like I said, I, I, can, I, can get, I can get a lot more pressure with pipe clamps. Yeah, but I don't need pressure. I like gaps. <laughs> but if, if I'm doing a glue up of something other than like a tabletop, I'm using medium duty F clamps for everything. And another good thing that I like about the parallel clamps is if I'm clamping up a panel and I'm done with it, I can just stand them up on their feet and move it out of the way. Well, you can do the same thing with pipe clamps if you use the same length ones. They just yeah, but you got a little just a small pipe on the end that you got to stand them up on. You know, as far as like clamps goes and sizes and stuff, I'd recommend depending on it. Really depends on the projects you're making. Uh, If you're going to do cabinetry work, you want clamps that are at minimum 24 inches wide. Mm-hmm. Uh, or can clamp up to 24 inches because that'll help you with you know, things like face frames with the depth and things like that. Um, 24, 36, you know, 48, 50, those are all good sizes. I've got some really, you know, the, talking about the jet, the jet stuff, I've got some like 60 and 72 inch parallel clamps that I've used maybe like once or twice. Yeah. So we always talk about this and this kind of dovetails nicely into this conversation. It, it just depends on what kind of woodworking you're doing. Yeah. I'll give you a little bit of insight on, on what we're doing there in each of our shops. I'm really surprised we doesn't own any pipe clamps. I don't have any pipe clamps. Unbelievable. How do you survive? I, you know, he has a huge clamp collection. I don't understand why he would add more clamps to (laughs) rid of some of that crap. (laughs) <laughs> I use them all. They're great. Anyway, <laughs> right. I need to get some pipe clamps. No, you don't. Okay. Yes, you do. How many How many parallel clamps do you own? And be honest. I, I don't know. Oh, yes, you do. No, I, 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 I don't know. Knows. Everybody knows. If if I was at if my shop was actually at my house, I'd probably go and count them. But right now, it's not at my house. What's a What's a guess? Uh, probably like twenty four. I think, yeah, that sounds about right. So why would you need pipe clamps? I don't know. Because you can put more pressure on them and they're they're flatter and they're easier to use. You don't need more pressure. Sometimes you do. No. <laughs> they're easier to use. How? What? How? They're it's just the easier to use. I find them easier to use. I find I find parallel clamps fidgety and they don't apply pressure where I need them to. They're anything but parallel. You guys are just some of the besties. They're anything but parallel. They, I, I, they tend to, to to push the 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 wood out one way or the other. I don't know. I guess just comfortable with what yeah. what you grew up with using. Yep. You guys are going to go on and on and on about this. Well, <laughs> actually, I want to talk about a word from this episode sponsor, Maverick Abrasives. Maverick Abrasives is a family-run, American-made manufacturer of abrasives such as sanding belts and sanding discs. And there are no materials used from China in their manufacturing process, and they do really stand behind their quality and service. They have five-inch sanding disc boxes starting as low as $12.50. Wow. And their pricing on sanding belts is the best on the internet. So give Garrett a call or check out their website at worldwideweb.maverickabrasives.com. And uh, they are really good stuff and they, uh, they really do take good care of people. So I think we has the next question. That's right. And so this question is from Garrett. He actually uh, sent it to me via my DM but I put it in here. So uh, Garrett, thank you for sending it to us. Uh, Good morning. I have a quick question about building a slab top hand tool bench. I was recently gifted a great 60 inch by 20 inch by four and a half inch oak slab. My goodness, that's huge. I've read Chris's book, Chris Schwarz, I I imagine is who he's talking about, and would like to do a Rubo style bench. My problem is my current shop is in the basement and I would eventually like to move to a new outbuilding shop down the road. What design ideas would you suggest for a sturdy base design that is functional, but could eventually be broke down and moved them and move them out back together? I was thinking sliding dovetails in the bottom of the slab, then build a base to connect to that. I have no idea. <laughs> Appreciate the help. 
in these types of situations, I kind of tend to think simpler might be better. Chris, Chris Schwarz, along with Megan Fitzpatrick, uh, who were both at one point, I think, editors and contributors to Popular Woodworking Magazine, had done a LVL workbench, so a laminated workbench, I think, out of uh, some LVL beams and whatnot. Megan had, I think, the original idea and design, and, and, and Chris had helped her with it. But it is a knockdown bench, and I think what she used are long bolts, bed bolts, those types of things. I would suggest doing that. Uh, you know, I think the sliding dovetails, I mean, that's probably going to look great, and it's probably going to be a nice challenge for you to do. And, uh, you know, if you if you want to do that, great, go ahead and do that. But me, I think I would probably go the route of seeing something that has already been done, similar to um, Megan Fitzpatrick's bench, and go about doing it in a relatively simple way. Um, I know also uh, Ramon Valdez has made a knockdown workbench. Now, it doesn't have a top nearly as large as yours, but it's the same thing. He's using bed bolts. Uh, bed bolt type style uh, fasteners to hold his stretchers on his workbench together. So that's the direction I would go. Sean, is yours a knockdown? I, I know you have a shaker style. Oh, what? sorry, go ahead. I know you have a shaker style workbench. Is it a knockdown? The top is, uh, I sh attach the top through the bottom of the aprons using bolts so I can pop the top off. Mm -hmm. The base is mortise and tenon. Mm -hmm. So it's glued together. However, if you want to make it, you know, attach the top using bolts, like we talked about, use uh, peg mortise and tenons on the bay on the aprons, and that's about as knocked down as you know as you can get, in my opinion. Um, I know Fine Woodworking also has a build series about building a bench, and the, they talk about the uh, the peg mortise and tenon uh, on the aprons. Now the side aprons. Um, you could probably do that, but you typically want that flush with the front of the bench, so you could glue together mm -hmm. the side aprons. But the long, the longer aprons that connect the, you know, the two assemblies, as you'll call it, you could definitely use some peg mortise and tenons to knock that down. So you're only having to move a top that's connected with uh, bolts, and then the, you know, the two assemblies that are the side aprons, I guess, and the legs, and then some some longer aprons. I think that's about as you know as knocked down as as I can think about. On, on something this massive to hold that four and a half inch oak slab top. Mm. Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a big ass top. <laughs> yeah. Really a ton. As far as a knockdown base goes, we hit, I think we hit the nail on the head, which is, which is to use the, the bed bolts. Some people call them bench bolts. It really doesn't mm -hmm. matter. They're pretty much the same thing. Uh, that's a great way to, 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 to do knockdown stuff, and it's pretty strong. You can really tighten and torque the heck out of them down. As far as he's talking about attaching it, you know, sliding dovetails on the bottom of the slab, then build a base to connect it. I, I really don't think that's necessary. I think even the Rubo benches, they just, the, the, the legs sit in mortises in the top, correct? And the yes. top just sits on top of it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yep. So I think you, you know, four and a half inch thick oak slab. I think anywhere. you, could, I think you could do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to go anywhere, Garrett. I'm not an expert on workbenches. I, I, I know that people have built a lot of these Rubo benches. I'm not a big hand tool guy. I can use them, I guess, as good as most people, but I don't depend on them as heavily as some people do. So building a bench like that was never a priority for me. So I didn't do a lot of research on it. That being said, the, the bench I built for myself is very small, but it weighs probably 350 pounds. It's heavy. It's, 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 it's a little beast. I mean, it's like a big rock in my, my shop. That's the only thing I can recommend to you. If you're going to put something together, make sure it's sturdy and heavy and can take the pounding you're going to give it. That's, that's all the advice I can give on a workbench. You could also use pocket holes. <laughs> <laughs> just joking, by the way. Yeah. Just some, don't do just it and then get mad at me. Just some Craig screws, no glue. It'll hold together fine. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. All right. With that, I think Sean, you've got the next question. Yeah. All right. This is from Matt. 
Uh, hey, fellas, two questions for you. We got a number, another uh, two question question here. Purely hypothetical. You can only have one table saw or track saw, and why? Ooh. And I'm going to pass this around before I go to the next question. But for me, one hundred thousand percent table saw. It's it's just. I mean, come on. You can. Yeah. It's there's too many creature comforts between you know dados, my you know, uh, cutting angles, the jigs. Yeah, you can do some of that with a track saw. There's no way I would have a, a track saw over a table saw. I understand some people are limited in their space. I get it. I'm not hating on you. You do you. That's awesome. <laughs> For me in my shop, and I should have prefaced that by saying this. Table saw 100% just because of everything you can do with it w- without a doubt. And and I'm going to, Guy, what do you think? Table saw or track saw for 500? Table saw. You sure? Absolutely. I really like having my track saw. And if I'm building any type of cabinetry or I'm working with sheet goods, I love my track saw. However, the track saw does not excel at certain things, like you said. Like you said, Sean, you can't put a dado stack on it, mm-hmm. which I use the hell out of. You can't um, use jigs and fixtures with it. It's. I don't want to say it's a one-trick pony because it's not, but it's it's a two-trick pony. The table saw is just so versatile. Yeah, you just can't. You just can't give that that up. Anything, anything I can do on the track saw, I can do with the table saw. Yeah, I'm going to agree 100% with all of you and go with table saw. Just because I'm creature comforts, like you said, Sean, and then all the jigs and fixtures that I have with the table saw guy, all those things. I, I have nothing more to add other than the fact that, yeah, I just prefer it. Um, I'm, I'm used to it. Yeah, I, I- you know, it also depends. I've seen plenty of videos of cabinet makers that do nothing but use an MFT in their track saw and get everything done they need to with, you know, with a couple of other tools like a domino or a biscuit joiner or something like that. So don't get me wrong. It, it, it again, it kind of goes back to the other question. It, it depends on what kind of work that you're doing in your mm-hmm. shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's can awesome. You- it's awesome that they can do that. Absolutely. And I'm, you know, I, I watched the video. I was like, dang, can I really get rid of this t- table saw and do this? And I'm like, nah, no, nah, I can't do it. You, you know who uses their track saw like all the time and does amazing work with it is Eric, Eric at um, Poplar. Shop. Yes. He uses his track saw like crazy. Yes. He also builds a lot of cabinetry too. Yeah, he builds a lot of cabinetry. I like that he has the room for that big four by eight table in there to break down a sheet goods man i'm just so jealous of that i'm like dang yeah. I, I want that instead of laying on the floor and all that crap yeah but yeah. question number two when sanding back how far is back are you aiming for a perfectly flat surface <laughs> this is harder to achieve on open grain woods like oak yes hmm. uh you know I, I think it depends on what kind of finish that you're trying to achieve are you going for like a you know like a high polish then i'm going for perfectly flat if i'm going for hey i'm putting a slap on some armor seal got four coats going i'm just removing the dust nibs and then until it's smooth by hand wiping it off and applying the next finish i'm not you know i'm not too concerned about making it perfectly flat when i'm doing something like that but if i'm going with the high polish yeah i'm going to sand it until it's perfectly flat and then, you know, it's a consistent, that sanded appearance and you have no shiny spots. Uh, so that way, you know, it's perfectly flat and then continuing the finish recipe. Uh, but when it's, it just depends on the finish and what you're trying to achieve. Are you high gloss or no gloss? It just depends on where you're going. But, uh, wait, what do you think about this? How far back do you go when you're sanding on the finish? Um, I don't know. I just, I just get it to, to a haze, you know, when I, when I see that I'm, when I've hit all of the finish, right. Do you rub it with your hand? Like if you like, you know, like I said, if you're doing like a high polished, you you know, that's a little bit different. You're going to have to work it a whole lot more than if you're doing a a satin or semi-gloss armor seal. But you know, when you're sanding, are you constantly rubbing it with your hand to make sure you got all of the, the nibs and stuff? 
Yeah, I definitely put uh, rub my hand across it just to make sure that I got all the nibs and that I've got the, those sections of it flat. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. Yeah, for me, sanding back, all that means to me is getting rid of the dust nibs. And, and I'm using my hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I'm old and grumpy, my hands still are pretty sensitive. So I can move, I can move my hands over a tabletop and I can feel, you know, I'll, I'll sand it back. It's all done by hand. I don't use a, a power sanders. Mm-hmm. It's all done by hand. Well, that's not necessarily true. Except with water-based poly, I use a 500 grit sanding pad. Anyways, mm-hmm. so, but for any other finish, I'm just using, you know, 320 or 400 to sand back. It's very light. I'm just scuffing mm-hmm. it. Right. Brushing it off and then running my hand over it to feel any dust nibs. Once I've got that finish, you know, even the first coat, just like a seal coat of shellac, and I'm sanding it back, I'm just making sure it's still, you know, nice to the touch and smooth. That's all I'm doing. Yeah, you're not re- you're not removing all of the coat yeah, that you put down. Yeah. yeah. All I'm doing is just trying to get rid of any imperfections that th- there might have been in the finish mm. and then I'm yeah. putting another coat down and then and, you know with like shellac I'll put a coat down sand it back and then put like two or three coats down before I sand again mm. now so, going for a super high gloss with something like shellac obviously you know that's gonna be a little bit different you're gonna not saying compared to what you just said God, i'm just talking in general yeah uh, you're gonna you're gonna build up those layers to get a thick layer and then you're gonna sand it back using perhaps a high grit on an orbital sander and then you're going to be able to tell where there are high spots and low spots based mm-hmm. on the differences in the sheens of the of the glossy spots and you're going to want that completely flat in one tone one sheen before you then switch grits to the higher grits and build that polish so if you're going for a higher sheen you're definitely going to be doing a little bit more work to leveling that out but yeah. varnish whatever we're just removing the dust nibs and and then applying the next coat yeah mm. yeah all right hope that helps gonna pass it right off to guy okay and that's uh, this is the last question yeah that's right man time flies when you're having fun mm-hmm. this huh? is from chris olson And Chris writes, good day, gentlemen. Great information, but let's jump right in and not boost your egos any more than necessary. (laughs) This is kind of, this is four paragraphs, but they're not really long paragraphs. But I'm going to read it because everything he says in here is pretty much relative to what the conversation is going to be. Uh, My wife and I built a custom house in 2020, which somehow has a master closet that's only 50 square foot smaller than my wood shop. Well, I don't, I don't believe that is true. Oh, okay. It says, okay, kidding. I'm grateful to have my own shop space, but I would like your thoughts on using pre-finished plywood for making built-ins for said closet. It will be a huge project, and the thought of spraying latex or a pre-cat lacquer on that many cabinets sounds daunting. The built-ins will be some shade of white with lower drawer banks and upper giving upper open shelving hanging areas on the lower sections i can use uv finished ply as the interior will not need to be white but i can but can i get custom colors for the open uppers if i go the route of using pre-finished ply then all joinery joinery will need to be concealed and i would like to and i would likely need to purchase a system for this the Lamello P system looks slick, but a hefty investment. What system would you choose for this application? Thank you for your input, Chris. So let's talk about the first. There's basically two questions here. Mm-hmm. Um, what, ty- what kind of plywood should I use? So you can get plywood that's UV1 or UV2. UV1 means it's finished one side. UV2 means it's finished both sides. Mm-hmm. And if you're building cabinets like this or built-ins and you want the interior to use the pre-finished ply, I would get UV1 because mm-hmm. in most cases, you'll never see the other side. You'll only see one side. Mm-hmm. Correct? Yep. So mm-hmm. get UV1. 
as far as spraying them goes, those parts of the cabinets, all you do is, you know, build the uppers as a separate unit and just turn the wood around Mm -hmm. and use the other side, the unfinished side, and then spray it. Mm -hmm. As far as spraying goes, I would use, I wouldn't, myself, I would use a pigmented water-based lacquer if you're going to spray. And that that comes out really nice and you can get all kinds of colors. Mm -hmm. So that's the first part of the question. What do you think we... Yeah, totally agree. UV1 for the interior uh, finished ply. Uh, Yeah, having the unfinished side out, uh, make sure you use a good primer. Well, actually, if he's using uh, some type of lacquer, then he probably wouldn't need to. He would just be using the lacquer as the first coat as the primer. Um, Another thing is to protect the interior. Uh, I know a lot of people will mask the inside. Cabinet but, guy you, but, but, but if you're doing built-ins, you're not, you don't need to mask the inside because you're not spraying anything. You're not spraying the outside of it. They're going up against each other or up against a wall. Oh, and, and then he would be fa- spraying the face frame separately and then attaching it. Yeah, but his, right. his question is right. spraying. He says that there's some uppers mm-hmm. that's going to be open, and he wants to paint those white. Right. So the, the unfinished side would be the exterior part because you're not going to see any of it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just saying flip the plywood the other way mm-hmm. and use the unfinished as the inside and then just spray that. Yep, yep. Yeah, I agree 100%. 100%. All right. I, I like using – I've used pre-finished ply a few times, and dang, it, it's it's nice. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you ever used um, the pigmented lacquer, Sean? No, I uh, I know no. who he has. Yeah. No, I don't have the room to spray, and it's it's just uh, too much of a hassle. Yeah, you got that nice sprayer. Um, you should try it sometime. You really should. It it sprays really easy. It doesn't create a huge mess. It lays down real nice, and it's very easy to apply. So I'm just. Oh, well, I'd like it. to, but um, I just haven't. And that's much better than spraying latex. So. Now we get to the second part of his question. And he says, if I go the route of using pre-finished ply, then all the joinery will need to be concealed. And I would likely need to purchase a system for this. All right. If you're doing built-ins, this is just like the UV one where you only need the finish on one side. Mm -hmm. Built-ins all your joinery is going to be going from the outside in, in other words, like screws through the carcass or through the sides into your mm-hmm. shelves and tops and things like that. Mm-hmm. You will never see them anyways. Screws and nails. Be- exactly. Yeah. Simply because they're going to be butted up against each other mm-hmm. or up against the wall. Right. And on the one piece that's on the end, you just put an end panel on it. Yep if you do have a open thing. Mm -hmm. So the way we've been building cabinets at work lately, it's real simple, man. We don't even use glue on them anymore. (laughs) We just set the things down. I I use staples instead of nails. Mm -hmm. I I put, you know, staples in it, boom, 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 two or three of those. And then I just drive, don't even pre-drill. I drive two inch self-tapping screws and just, Zip, zip, zip. Yep. And in 10 minutes, I got a, I got a complete cabinet. And if you're doing something like that for the, the built-ins, it's the exact same thing if you're doing something like that. You're not trying to be real super high-end but still look really nice. It actually will, will be like semi-high-end. Nobody, nobody can tell. You don't need any fancy joinery system. Um, the Lamello P system is a good system, but it's really for knockdown furniture. So you can build this thing in your shop, take it apart, and then just assemble it upstairs. If you need to do that, yeah, I would look at the P system. Festool also makes a good system. I think it's a little labor intensive to use, but it's still a good system. And there's some other options out there. So yeah, uh, what do you think, Sean? I agree with everything you said about using screws you're not going to see them and on the you know throw an end cap on 
there's there's no need to invest in a system like that for something like this. But if you're looking for a reason to, obviously, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you could you could use this as an excuse to get something. I mean, I have a Domino, so that's what I would use. Uh, and I don't, I know there's a person on YouTube that has some Lamelo videos that you could probably watch. I wonder. Um, yeah, I I wouldn't watch the one that Guy put out. No, I'm just joking. No, look, I would watch the one that I think Paul Millard is his name. Who? Yeah, exactly. No, there's a, there's a guy who's named Paul. I think Paul Millard or Paul Miller or something like that. Yeah, just um, search for the LOP system. You'll find him. Yeah, he does. He does. He has a real good video on the the P system too. Not as good as mine, but it's good. It's a good video. But you know the the advantages of the like the Lamello P system is that it's it's RTA or ready to assemble or knock down, yep. so you can build this these pieces in your shop disassemble them, take them upstairs. It's easier to transport from one part of your house to the other than trying to get this large cabinet in a, you know, it depends on how much room you have. I mean, I, I, I know people that have their bedroom closets are half the are, are the size of half my downstairs of my house and you could park a car in them. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to do anything like that. But like in my closet upstairs, yeah, I've got like a 30-inch door. There's a nasty turn. Mm -hmm. It would be a lot easier for me to use a knockdown system, build them downstairs, bring them upstairs, and assemble them in place. Well, it sounds like Chris has a big master closet, so I don't think he has to worry about that. Yeah. You know? So, uh, But like Sean said, if you need an excuse... <laughs> And if you need, you know, you need something to con convince your spouse that you need, it's like, eh, yeah, I need this. Might be a good excuse to get it. <laughs> yeah. Buy the, buy the Lamel P system, a colonial saw and write them a note saying I sent you. <laughs> so is that it? I think yeah. that's it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we're going to talk about what's going on in the shop. And I'm going to say... Sean, go first. What's going on in your shop? All right. So working on the cabinet still. I don't know if you guys have heard about that thing. I started it 37 <laughs> months ago, but I am super, super, super close to pre-finishing and then uh, going to assemble it. I got the drawer. It looks done. really good, Sean. Sure well, does. thank you. It's sure. making me contemplate selling my tools because it's taken so long, but no, I'm just joking. Uh, I hope to have that done, but you know what? I'm going to say it on here. I hope to have it done by the next episode that you hear. Um, and I just need to cut rabbits in the drawer side, which I've already got that ready to roll and assemble the drawer veneer, a back panel, which I'm trying to debate on what kind of uh, veneer I want to use for that. Cause I got some pretty cool looking curly sycamore uh, or some of the, some more of the walnut. And then it's sand pre-finish assemble and then done. And then mm -hmm. figure out what's next. And then while I was doing that, I should have been almost done by now, but I had a, a water heater fell on me that I had to mess with <laughs> for all last weekend. And then I had to house set a kitten that was extremely noisy. So I had zero time in the, uh, in the shop. What? That was extremely noisy? Kitten. A cat. House sitting kittens. Kitten? Okay. Or kitten. Uh, you got a kitty? No. Just for, it was my something for my sister, so I didn't get much time in the shop last weekend um, with the water heater and that. But mm. and then we had some ice and snow, and I just didn't feel like dealing with it. But I'm super close, and I'm going to hold myself accountable. Say I will have it done by the next episode, or at the very least, applying finish on the dang thing. Yeah, it, it, like I said, it looks really good, Sean. Doing curved doors like that, I mean, it's not an easy task, especially hanging it when it's veneered because you can't trim the door that you got to be perfect. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to have to touch the door up cause it's touching. So I'm going to have to uh, trim off the edge banding that's on there and re edge band it. And then, um, and then I got to fix two or three freaking broken brass screws. So oh. I still yet to do that. Are you chasing your threads with, with a steel screw? Oh, yeah. I'm pre-drilling oh. and then chasing it with steel screws. Um, and, and the problem is it's just going to that, into that really hard plywood. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
but for some reason, two of them, two or three of them broke. I'll get them out. It's no big deal. Yeah. It just set me back a little bit. Yeah. Well, Hui, what have you got going on in your shop? In my shop? Not yeah, nothing. much. You don't have a shop. Yes, you do. Uh, well, I've been working on the new shop. Uh, yeah. I did the floor finish. That took forever. And that took forever, because not because it took me did forever. Did you do the epoxy or the other stuff? I did the epoxy flake system, yeah. So it's epoxy base coat, then the flake, and then a polyurethane top coat. Um, and the the setback on that was not necessarily me. It was um, in the middle of this. We had a snowmageddon here in Alabama. Would you get an inch? No, no. We got, we got like, we got like four or five inches. It was. Oh my God. Four oh, or man. five inches. It was significant. Dude, well, we almost I, got an inch of ice before we got eight <laughs> inches of snow. Well, we yeah. don't have snow plows. So when it drops in temperature, uh, at night, then it all turns to ice the next day. Cause n- none of the road, you know, we don't have any plows. And it was just, it was terrible because this epoxy stuff, if it's freezing outside, the manufacturer won't ship it. Yeah. And it just, it was just on back order and waiting and waiting and waiting. I mean, I, I finished prep on the floor like two weeks ago, but I finally, this week, I finally got the opportunity to apply it and it, it's done. It looks great. I was telling somebody, I can't remember who it was. Your name came up somehow. And I was like, you know, if woodworking doesn't work out, you could always sell cars out of that thing because it's so spotless. It looks like a dealership in there. <laughs> yeah, wait until the house settles a little bit and it all cracks and oh yeah, oh is oh, uneven yeah. and of course. yeah, it's going to be yeah. wonderful. Don't That's be a Debbie wonderful. Downer guy. Come on, Thanks, I'm man. not being a Debbie Downer. I'm being realistic. <laughs> and then That's I character. Uh, and then I drilled a three and a half inch hole through the uh, through the garage wall today for my mini split. So that's, that's all I've been doing in the last two weeks. How about you guy? I think you've got quite a bit going on, at least in the, in the. At work, I've always got stuff going on. Yeah. I I don't have much going on in the home shop. My my wife has been taking over my shop on the weekends. She's been painting trim. Mm. I had to replace all the uh, shoe mold in my house and put new trim in uh, and base uh, molding in a lot of the house because we had new floors put in Um, and they ripped all that stuff out. And then the old stuff we still ripped out. So it all has to be painted and then installed. So I'm working on that and she's working on that. So I don't have much going on in my shop. Mm -hmm. Um, At work, I've got a lot going on. They gave me a project this week. It was like one of those projects that some interior designer, you know, they, they, they know everything about furniture. <laughs> uh, they designed this 16 foot it's it's two eight foot tables joined together two eight foot tabletops mm-hmm. that are four feet wide inch and a half white oak then they designed this mid-century modern really super thin dainty base for it and i'm looking at this thing and i'm going do they realize that this top is going to weigh somewhere around 400 pounds, give or take? Because there's no way this base is going to be able to support a 16-foot, 400-pound tabletop. Mm. So it's been a real challenge for me (laughs) to figure out. They give me a lot of leeway as far as you know, joinery, because there is no joinery on any of these plants. It's just a drawing saying it it needs to look like this. Mm-hmm. So it's been a real challenge to try to design something that's going to have strength and still look the way the designer wants it to look with as mm-hmm. few changes to the, to the aesthetic as possible. So that's been a real head scratcher the last couple of days. That's, that's my latest thing was working on that. And I, I got, I think I have it figured out and then it has to be assembled on site because Ooh. we're not going to be able to get it in otherwise. Yeah, that's that's why it's thing. in two pieces, two, eight foot. Pieces. Oh no, it's going to be like six pieces, the base. Oh, and it's got gotcha. to be assembled on site. So I've got to make it, you know, RTA ready to assemble on site mm. to hold the 400 pound tabletop. <laughs> that's going to be Fun. used as a conference table. 
IV. So I got that going on. We delivered, uh, you, I don't know if you guys remember that really weird cabinet I made. That yeah, had with the, the petrified wood and whatnot. Petrified wood, yeah. We delivered that today and put in the customer's house. And uh, he's just over the moon happy. His wife is just, oh my God, it's so beautiful. I'm going, I almost said, really? <laughs> No, I, it's one of those things. I, I post a picture on Instagram. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. I, I, and I mean, it well, is. You didn't what have it a is. choice, guy. Yeah. Well, I'm just building what I was told to build. Yeah. It was still my design, but I had certain design parameters. So, but yeah. we delivered that today, and that was kind of nice. So, anyways, that's that's about it. I could go through all the stuff I've got going on in the shop, but nobody cares. So. Uh, but I think that's going to do it for the show. And we'd like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. So please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from you, the woodworking community. And if you have working woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them to the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com. Wow, that's a mouthful or DM us to our Instagram account at Woodshop Life. And you can reach me and find me at guyswoodshop.com and guyswoodshop on social media. And where can you be found at, We? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. And Sean, where can we find you? You can find me at Simple Cove on YouTube and Instagram and, and simplecove.com where you can share your projects and create your own portfolio and see mine at forward at simplecove.com forward slash Sean. Nice. Awesome. All right. We will uh, talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Talk to you in a couple. See you. See you.